This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. This morning we want to, of course, continue our summer series that we've been embarking on called From the Pastor's Heart. So let's turn the pages of Scripture into Philippians chapter 3, which we're going to look at this morning. And as I said, I'm glad that uh, we have this series from the pastor's heart, because really it allows each of us to uh, speak as pastors from the heart. Now I want you to know we do that, but uh, from week to week, but uh, when we prepare sermon series, we often do that six months in advance, and we organize series of Scriptures and break down passages and assign them to to different ones of us to preach, and so as those texts roll forth, that's what we preach to you. But we've taken a break here in the midst of summer and allowed the pastoral staff just to share with you something that's on their heart. So I want you to know that this morning, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share with you a burden that's on my heart. And it's a weighty burden, it's not a negative burden, it's very much a positive burden, but it's nonetheless a burden that I would say to any one of you at any point in time that I carry for each person who comes into this body. From time to time, I have sat with people and we've talked about their lives and what they're experiencing in their life, and my heart has literally ached to be able to give some of what I have experienced to them. But I know that apart from them assuming the burden that I'm going to speak about this morning, that those experiences are impossible. You might say, well, what is that burden? Simply put, it's that everyone here have the opportunity to experience real Christianity. Now, that may sound odd when I say it like that, because we're here, it's Sunday morning, we're worshiping, a lot of us have our Bibles, and and so on and so forth. But But I want you to know, as a Christian of over 25 years, I've learned that real Christianity is a very slippery thing. Amidst all the fervor of religious activity, the reality is is that finding the needle of real Christianity is very difficult in that vast religious haystack filled with church meetings and Christian friends and seminars and worship services and programs and Bible studies and trips and retreats and service functions and social gatherings. All of those, of course, have a legitimate place and purpose within a Christian's experience. But I want you to know that those very things, as good and as honorable as those things are, are easy substitutes for the real thing. And what is the real thing? Well, the real thing is a rich, personal, listen, experiential relationship with God who is offered in the person of Jesus Christ to this world. One of the things that I have found, and I have fallen many times and scarred my knees and bumped my head, but I have learned that the known is far easier to embrace than the unknown. The visible is far easier to participate in than the invisible. 
Church is easier to come to than God. It's easier to bow the head in prayer than to break the heart. It's easier to serve than to seek. It's easier to be at something than to meet with an almighty someone. It's easier to participate than to encounter. And yet, real Christianity demands all of those latter things. If you look here at Philippians chapter 3, it's what Paul calls in Philippians 3.8, the surpassing value, listen, don't, don't go over those words too quick, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul knew all about religious duty, religious participation, and religious frenzy. If you're there in Philippians 3 and at verse 8, you might move your eyes up to verse 4 and following. He, the kind of, he kind of tells us of the kind of culture that was saturated with that kind of religious frenzy, and for many years he himself had been immersed in it. He says in verse 4, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh about what they do as a, as a believer... I far more. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. In other words, I got my certificate of baptism in the Jewish way. He says that I was of the nation of Israel, the one chosen of God. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And that was a prideful thing for him because remember when the nation split after Solomon and went north, only two remained south. Judah, the line of Judah through which the Messiah and the kings would come, and Benjamin, his tribe who zealously stayed in loyalty. He said, I was of that tribe. He said, I was a Hebrew, not just a Hebrew, but a Hebrew of Hebrews. One of the best. As to the law, a Pharisee. Come on, give me a verse. I can quote it. Chapter and verse. Context and everything else. Just give it to me. As to zeal, a persecutor of this wayward group that calls himself the church. He said, I went after them to put them to shame. And he says, as to righteousness, which is in the law, look at my life. You won't find anything wrong. But as what we discover when we go on to the text, we want to put a little paraphrase there, kind of an addendum that says, and as to a rich personal relationship with God, nowhere. Nowhere. What follows in verses 7 and 8, we might label the original great awakening. Look what he says. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And there you have it. One of the most succinct summaries in all of the New Testament about what real Christianity is all about. The surpassing value, it's valuable, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not knowing Him in an informational way, as you go on and read through the text, it goes far beyond that. But knowing Him in a dynamic, personal, face-to-face -face way. He even develops that in verse 10. He says, that I may know Him as He goes through this scenario, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed, being conformed to His death. And what He means by that is 
He's saying, my goal is to know Jesus Christ in such a way that I may experience the power that was demonstrated in His resurrection. That some of that power, whatever it all is, might be a part of my experience and that I may understand the fellowship of His sufferings which He taught as to endure pain and endure hardship to resist temptation and adversity in order to climb a higher step to a higher standard of a way of living. Christ suffered to get to that place from a human perspective. And I want to join the fellowship of those kind of sufferings in a world that knows nothing about what this means and even resist it. And if it takes suffering, I want to get there and live that way. In fact, if I could paraphrase verse 10, I might say it this way, that I may know Him and experience His life fully in my life. Now the question, is that what you're here for? Is that, is that what is on your mind as you walked in this morning? As you live your life? Or do you settle for something less? You know, in his classic work, Knowing God, J.I. Packer made this candid observation. He says, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about Him. And you know, it's been my experience through the years to meet people who know a lot about God. Seminary professors, people in various churches around the country. But oftentimes, that knowledge is not translated into living. And yet I've met people in some of the remotest corners of the earth who just have pieces of the understanding we possess, and yet their rich understanding of God Himself is charismatic draws you to them. You draw energy from them. Packer goes on and writes and he says, we must learn to measure ourselves not by our knowledge, nor by our gifts, nor by our responsibilities that we assume in the church, but by how we pray and what goes on in our heart with God. Many of us, he says, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. So let us ask the Lord to show us. You know, those are great words that I read a number of months ago. So I asked the Lord to show me. You know, it's interesting when you re-enter that kind of train of thought and spirit that God begins to speak to you. And what He began to say to me was with all that I was doing, that I was coasting far too much. Coasting on church, coasting on religious activities, coasting in the pulpit, Coasting. And for a second thing, I was not engaging again the disciplines, the real disciplines of pursuit of knowing Him. So in the last few months, I've re-engaged kind of along the lines of the Kellogg ad where you taste Him again for the first time. And that's what I've been trying to do. To meet with God. To carve out that kind of time where there's an engagement of the personal, not of the duty, not of the activity, not of the participation. And God has begun to speak with me and fellowship with me in a deeper way. But you know, many people have not even had the first experience to go back to. And I have discovered it is so easy to lose the real thing in the midst of religion. So easy that whole churches have lost it. So easy that whole denominations have lost it. So easy 
that whole generations have lost it. So that the quest of knowing God is missed entirely among all the religious frenzy of our day. You know, the form of religion would still be there. Some of you have come to our church from those kind of settings. They still sing songs. They still hold services. They still go through prayers. They still observe certain liturgies at times of the season and celebrate the holy days. But the heart, the essence of religion, that rich personal contact with the living God that gives heart life, and heart energy, and heart enthusiasm, which melts the heart into obedience, and submission, and willingness to do whatever the will is. It's missing. And it's gone so much that in those sterile environments, for one to begin to talk as if he knows God, and has a relationship with God, is to become a stranger in the midst of religion. Scripture and history bear witness to what I call many downgrades of the real thing. Now, I've used the word downgrade. That's not a familiar term. In fact, you probably don't use it very much, but I borrowed it from a great preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, who used the word downgrade a hundred years ago in the 1890s. And he used it to chide his fellow churchmen and the pastors of those churches who had embraced once a vibrant evangelical faith and were now at the dawn of the, what they considered the golden age, the 20th century. We're now jettisoning the faith and exchanging the teachings of Jesus Christ for the new teachings of Karl Marx. And we're throwing away the inerrancy of Scripture for the evolution of Charles Darwin. And believing in doing that, that man would assume his rightful place as king of the universe in the golden age of the 20th century would come about. Well, how does it feel to be at the end of the golden age? Spurgeon was right. It was a downgrade, wasn't it? And there are many such downgrades. In fact, there are perennial downgrades that often become quick substitutes for the real thing. And I want to give you five of them this morning. And what I want you to do as we move through those, I want you to open your heart up and you say, could I be guilty of a downgrade as a substitute for the real thing? The first is this, religion without revelation. Now, I'm going to speak generally now in the first one of what I have seen take across our country for much of this 20th century. Because there, have, there has been more loss of life through the steady and slow disregard of biblical truth than there has been in all the wars of this last hundred years. For the last few decades, there have been many mainline denominations in their seminaries who have taken young men who want to preach the faith and have done more to erode the faith during their education than inspire it. And those young men come out and then fill pulpits and deliver words that discourage spiritual life rather than elevate it. Many times you've found men stand in what I call the wimpy pulpit. And when I mean the wimpy pulpit, where the constant message to the congregation week after week is that I'm okay and you're okay and all we need is love and don't worry about sin and don't worry about judgment and don't worry about any of those things. We're just all in this together as a big universal family going to one common source. 
And then there's the ideological pulpit that grows out of those kind of shallow ground where the embrace of every new liberal fad becomes new doctrine. And the people who sit in those congregations oftentimes love to hear their pastors share with them that the Bible wasn't right about premarital sex. The Bible's not right about divorce. And don't worry about what life looks like before birth. And that God sympathizes with our sin. He really understands and the idea of redeeming us from it, well, we can talk about that later. And that there is no hell. There is no judgment. There is no real life to come. And there are no rules. We just need to kind of be tolerant of one another. And in those environments, there's also no rich, personal, energetic meeting with the living God. Religion without revelation. You know the prophet Jeremiah lived in a day just like that? I want you to see how he evaluated that world in Jeremiah 5. I don't want you to turn there. I'm going to read these scriptures off the screen, but I want you to look what he said about a religion without revelation. He says an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. We might update that and say the pastors preach falsely and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will be at the end of that? It's a good question, isn't it? What's at the end of a religion without revelation? Well, I think some today are experiencing the end point and they're finding out. Instead of a vibrant spirituality that really has changed their life, they find that they've become a boundaryless people, bored with spiritual things, spiritually impoverished as a people, concerned primarily with themselves, and merely coping with life rather than being proactively excited spiritually about life. And they watch helplessly because from week to week they've been pounded with this altar of tolerance. They watch helplessly as new ways and new truths come sweeping into their congregations. Some of our mainline denominations today in unthinkable ways now have the introduction of pure paganism, goddess worship, the worship of Sophia brought in because it's politically correct. They've watched helplessly because they can't take a stand, they don't know what stand to take at the end. As they've watched marriage and family be reinterpreted and redefined by gay radicals. They've watched Things that were once called biblical sins now be reinterpreted to become your personal right. So enjoy. And the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord is a relic to be hanged in the foyer of the church. Religion without revelation. A second downgrade gets a little closer to home. Tradition. The prophet Isaiah knew all about tradition. In Isaiah 29, 13, this is what Isaiah says. Then the people said, then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service. But they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. There are many Christians who Christianity is nothing more than 
doing it the way mom and dad did it and their grandfather and grandmother, that we take communion only this way, that we conduct the service the same way, that we sing the same songs that we've always sung for 800 years and we've got to have the organ just this way because that's the way we've always done it. And once we've done it, let's get it over with and go home and eat and let's be sure to be out at noon because that's the way they always did it in the past. 12 o'clock. So get finished. Don't give me any changes. Don't spring on me any surprises. Don't do anything different. Let's don't have any life either. Let's just do it the way we've always done it. I want you to know the idea that God is a dynamic person filled with multiple ideas and a God who has continually sprung surprises on traditionalists. That whole way of thinking is a foreign concept to traditionalists. But Jesus was always filled with surprises. He was always rattling the boundaries and superseding the boundaries of His day. And that's what shocked people so much. He was filled with those kind of things. And He was often extremely intolerant, if you read the Gospels, of those in traditions that would try to block His movement from doing His relevant kingdom work in the world. And yet, despite this obvious truth about God's dynamic nature, we often, even we, prefer sameness. You know why we prefer sameness? Because we can control sameness. But we can't control a dynamic, living God. We can't control Him. To go to the higher plane of meeting God is to engage a wild ride of the Spirit. And the wild ride of the Spirit will ask of you and ask of us things that are not comfortable for us. But God is not the God of yesterday only. God is the God of today as well. I want you to imagine going into a surgeon with a boil on your leg And uh, this surgeon looks at you and he said, you know, I want you to know I'm a traditionalist and I like to do the things the way they did 200 years ago. (laughs) So he pulls out a saw. I want you to imagine that we all dismissed today and I took you to the ice cream parlor that my mom and dad used to enjoy and it was chocolate and vanilla only. How'd you feel about that? Or what about the fact that We're going to get mail from now on by Pony Express because it was good enough for Grandpa and Grandma. Ought to be good enough for us. This World Wide Web stuff doesn't count anymore. If that sounds ridiculous, let me tell you, so does a people and a church whose only ideas come from a reach, a safe reach back into yesterday. When we're here to encounter the living God of today, who wants to take us vibrantly and enthusiastically on a wild ride into tomorrow. And anything less than that is to shorten our understanding of what it means to embrace the real thing. Third downgrade is entertainment. Entertainment. Many people follow the relevant, powerful, wild Jesus Christ. Listen. Listen not because they wanted to join Him. 
But they joined because they wanted to be entertained by him. The prophet Ezekiel experienced the same kind of treatment. And here's what God said to him in Ezekiel 33. He said, But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, they speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come, come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. And they come to you as people come. And they sit before you as my people. And they hear your word. But they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth. And their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you, you are to them like a, a symphony, a sensual song by which one has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. You see, anywhere God is moving in a unique and powerful way, it always draws a crowd. People always want to come and see. But there will always be the very real temptation to come and watch, not come and join this dynamic wild ride of the Spirit of God who wants to take your life and take it somewhere on His authority as Lord. A dynamic spiritual life can often be substituted for entertainment. In fact, we can almost treat it like watching the Razorbacks. I mean, we love the Razorbacks. We pay good money to see the Razorbacks. We pay good money to see spiritual life, too. But what we're paying money for is a ticket, not a jersey. Not the helmet for the playing field. We want the 50-yard line seat in the stands to watch it, not play it. And what a cheap substitute that is for the real thing. Call it a downgrade. There is a way to tell if you have opted for the entertainment downgrade. And I want to tell you how you can tell it for you. And that is, if you love it here on Sunday but the rest of the week your life is consumed with lustful desires, self-absorbed agendas, and unremorseful, ongoing sin. You're a fan. You're not a player. Beware of this downgrade. There's a fourth one. It's called knowledge. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The word arrogant in Greek means to be puffed up like a balloon. In other words, knowledge makes one to be puffed up, but love builds up. Another way we could say it is, knowledge is empty. It's just a big balloon with nothing in it. Love, on the other hand, is real. And you know, in a church, especially a Bible church, just the word Bible connotates the word knowledge. And oftentimes people come to get information. And if we're not careful, a Bible church becomes notorious for people with tall minds, but tiny hands and feet to do the will of God. Notice in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 8 it says, 
if anyone is real, that is, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You know, great thoughts and information about God can seduce us into imagining we've achieved a spirituality that we really have not. I love the confession that C.S. Lewis gave years ago in his book, Four Loves, when he said this, Those like myself whose imagination far exceeds their obedience are subject to a just penalty. We easily imagine conditions far higher than any we have really reached. If we describe what we imagine, we may make others and make ourselves believe that we have really been there. You know how you know if you're really there? Others will tell you. They will see your love in action because of your love for God, because He knows you and you've encountered Him. And the interchange and exchange and change that goes on cannot help but radiate outward because knowledge is empty, but love is real. And if you love, you've encountered the real God. If people around you are telling you you're not loving at all, You've missed the real thing for a downgrade. The last downgrade is what I call false security. False security. Now I want you to know, I believe firmly in the doctrine of eternal security for the believer. That is the doctrine that says that once you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, you are His forever. Nothing can change that. But I also want you to know that I believe in the doctrine of insecurity for the deceiver. And not a person who's intent on deceiving others so much as their own heart. It's the person who has said the sinner's prayer, the form, at a camp, or they've come down in a service, uh, they've been to a retreat and prayed with a friend, or they went through catechism and expressed belief in God, made a profession of faith. But in each of those cases, under the discerning eye of an omniscient God, they've never really, they've never really surrendered. And no one knows that. And no one knows the difference between the deceiver and the believer. And it's not our job to know, but let me tell you, there is one who does know. And He's the only one who counts in knowing. And that is God Himself. He knows. But I also want you to know in time, the differences between those two people do begin to show in life. The former will experience real life change because He's been changed. He's encountered the living God. He's surrendered the will and heart. There has been a new birth within and that radiates out. And even when He's wayward, there's an impulse of the Spirit always to pull Him back. But not so with the latter. Who continues to cover, now listen real carefully, who continues to cover his or her real lack of change with religious participation and self-deceived God talk. They can talk the language. There's no life. They think they're secure. And they'll raise their hands with the best of them that they're looking forward to the day of Christ. But they don't know, want to really know what's coming. I want you to know that Jeremiah the prophet knew all about people with deceptive words. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 7. He says, Behold, 
You are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, I'm saved. I have eternal security. I came forward in church and I prayed the prayer and I'm delivered. That you may do those abominations as well? Let me tell you, that kind of person has deceived themselves. And they're expecting the day of the Lord in heaven. In fact, I had one person tell me one time who was in, in deep in iniquity. Look at me in the midst of their iniquity and say to me, I know it's wrong, but I've been told and I know that I've been saved and been reassured of my salvation and I'll be in heaven just like you and I'm going to keep on doing it because I'm going to be just where you are. But I ask you this, could a regenerate heart say that? Here's what Amos would say to that heart. He would say this to the prophet, Alas, you are longing for the day of the Lord, but for what purpose will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as when a man flees from a lion, you know, fast he can, and he meets a bear. Or goes home satisfied and leans his hand against the wall feeling good about his life because he's home now. But when he gets there, a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? Even gloom with no brightness in it? Listen, beware of the false security. It's, it's a good thing. Paul even says it's a good thing to examine your heart, he says in Corinthians, and make sure that you are in the faith. Make sure that you have known God, that you've surrendered your will to Him. And then if you want to take a higher step up, get in the saddle of relationship for a wild ride. Don't settle for a downgrade. It's a serious loss to the real thing. So what does knowing God really mean? I want to answer that in two ways. First in a practical sense, then in an ultimate sense. Practically, listen, it means a relationship. And if you don't leave with anything else, it's so important that we start with that understanding. You know John 3.16, which all of us learned at some point in our life, for God so loved the world that He gave what? His Son. He didn't give rules. I mean, those, there are some rules there. It wasn't that He said, well, I'm going to satisfy Him with the church or I'm going to satisfy Him with these rituals. What He offered to us is His Son and in that is a whole message about the essence of real Christianity. He gave us a person to love and relate to and who wants to relate to us as well. His Son, who by way of resurrection is, in J.I. Packer's terms, and I love this, He is loose and at large today. When Jesus Christ resurrected, He got loose from a physical body so He could relate to us all. So that every man and every woman can enjoy the same quality of relationship as did even those disciples who physically had Him. No one asked you, do you believe that? That's the constant theme of the New Testament. Paul's heart breaks in Ephesians 3 when he says, I bow my knee before the Father and I pray that every man and woman from every tribe may know you like I do. The height and the length and the breadth of your love 
a relationship. But how do you have that relationship? Let me offer just three suggestions, practical suggestions. The first is this, a focused way of thinking. A way of thinking that believes God wants a relationship with me. That He wants to reveal Himself to me. That He wants to teach me and support me and answer my prayers. That He wants to engage me in a new kind of relationship that you're not going to find in this world, but that's in the world by faith because Jesus is here. Now, let me tell you, if you don't hear anything else this morning, I hope you will remember that. You may not be experiencing that. You may say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I can understand it here, but I can't understand it here. That's okay. But I just want you to hear at this church, on this day, that what's important here is not that you come to church, not that you're in a Bible study. Those things are important in themselves, but that's what's really important. More than any of those things is that you have your mind made up and you have your heart ready to pursue a personal relationship with God and you're not going to give up till you have it. Now that's a focused way of thinking. That's a fundamental upgrade. Secondly, it requires alone time in God's Word. And I want to offer you a different way of looking at God's Word. Not to study it, but to meet the God of it in it. And that's a different way. Now, I'm all for Bible study. I want you to know that. I've got three postgraduate degrees, so that says something about my desire to have knowledge. But I want, to, I want you to know that more important than any of that, and I would trade all of that, to have one encounter with the living God personally, where I know He knows me, and where I get by the encounter a little glimpse of Him. And in that, we become partners in life. So recently I've been taking the Proverbs and going through the Proverbs. That's my new book for this summer. But I don't come at it, and here's the way I would offer to you, don't come at it, I'm going to study it. Open it and begin with a simple prayer. God, speak to me here. Speak to me. You might want to convict me, comfort me, change my life, tell me to go to Honduras. I don't care, but I want to meet with you today. And in that prayerful, submissive, humble attitude, I begin to read through the Proverbs with a pen in hand, waiting. And God can convict me, and I underline it, and I think about it. And I confess it. He can direct me, He can instruct me, He can comfort me. And boy, it's so good to come across a, a passage that leaps off the page, and you feel the Spirit of God say, Robert, this is for you and me this morning. And oh, how that feels delightful. Oh, how that brings energy and heart life in here. And oh, how that makes you want to go out and share it with somebody because I met with God today. But you know, there are also times I've read through it and He doesn't say anything. He's just quiet. And that's okay too. God, my God, has that prerogative not to say anything at all. But you know what? I'm going to get up the next day and I'm going to do it again. Because my pursuit is of God, not to work in a church. It's the pursuit of God. And you know what the Scripture says? In fact, let me tell you what Jesus says. John 14, 21. Just simply this. He says, He who loves me, and that's what I see that as, in opening the Bible and say, God speaks to me. It's kind of like, God, 
I want to spend time with you because I'm in love with you. In John 14, Jesus said, He who loves me, listen now, don't go past this. Let's just have our own personal experience with God here. He who loves me, I will love him. And I will disclose myself to him. Oh God, thank you for that. Thank you for that little morsel that you drop that draws me to say, that's what I want. I want you to disclose your heart to me. But I've got to have the discipline to meet with him every day. The third is this. The third thing it takes to have a practical relationship is the discipline to entrust God with my issues. And then I put on your outline the parentheses and the courage to learn from what follows. See, I don't want other people to tell me. I want to entrust God with my issues and I want to learn how God deals with me. So here's what happens. I start entrusting some of my needs with God. I start offering Him my prayers. I start making requests of Him. And I do so fervently and in faith because He says, come in faith, seek and find. So I do that. And I offer some things up. I've got needs. And He answers one of my prayers. And you know what I go? I go, wow! He's really here! He really did it! And that energy gives me life. And sometimes I want to share that with others. And they go, wow! And I get encouraged that God would walk with me in life. There are other times I ask Him for things. And you know what He does? He doesn't give them to me. And rather than go ask for some theological understanding, I wrestle with that. And I want to know, why didn't you give that to me? I asked for it, you said if you ask, you'll receive. But he didn't give it to me. And so I wrestle and I start growing as a Christian. You see, I'm encountering the God of the universe and what I learn over time is God's not going to give me everything. And then I come across James and James says, you ask and you don't receive. And you know why? Because you ask wrongly. To spend it on yourself. So I learned something about encountering the God of the universe that he's going to give me things, but there are no things he's going to withhold from me. This is part, I'm learning to relate to God. Then there are other things I ask for, and he doesn't answer. And I go, I think those are righteous things, and I ask, and I go through pain and agony, and I wait, and it doesn't come, and he stretches me way, way, way out there. Like that. And then he answers. But you know, by the time he's answered, he's raised so much dross and sin from my life and stretching me so far out. He's taught me all about who He is. And He's taught me a lot about myself and putting me right out on that cliff that by the time He answers that prayer, it's not even that important anymore. Because what I've learned about me and Him, how to relate to God, not in a secondary way, not in a classroom, not in how to discover the will of God and read another book, me and Him, we learn together in His classroom. And I walk out and I say, I know God. And I like being with God. And I get energy from my relationship with God. First hand. Upgrade. That's what it means practically to me. What it means ultimately to me is this. And I've seen in other people's lives, and I would say with Paul in Philippians 3, not that I've already obtained it, because I don't think I have, but I'm pressing on, just like others, but ultimately after a long walk with Christ, what it means is eternal life. And eternal life, by the way, is a term of experience, not a date after death. It's not what happens when you die. Eternal life is a relationship with the living God. That's why Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer, 
He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and me, whom thou hast sent. When does that start? Anytime you want it to start. Anytime. By pursuing Him. It's a quality of life that sets in when you know God. And you know what happens over time? We quit whining and we stop coping and we ultimately rise above success or failure, good job, no job, pleasure, pain, single, married, whatever. Because as I understand it and the little bit I've tasted of it, knowing God supersedes all that because we're in a kingdom that never ends. Every other thing passes away. But those who abide in the will of God, that lives forever. See, when I was a young man as a Christian, people would say statements like that, and I'd sit up there and I'd go, I don't even know what he's talking about. In fact, it scared me. But you know, now 25 years into it, not only does it not scare me, the only thing I feel is shame that I don't have more of it. Because to have it, to have it all. Secondly, it means finding our transcendent cause. For those who press long enough and deep enough into the bosom of God in a relationship with Christ, they begin to understand in a supernatural way, in a way that cannot be taken away from them, listen, why they exist. Is that not one of the great dilemmas of man? Why do I exist? For what? Paul said in Philippians 3.12, he says, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Jesus grabbed hold of me for something. And I'm pressing on for that. And the greater I press on and the more I press on, the more I come into a rich understanding of why I'm the way I am, why I had the parents I had, why I had the pain that I had, why I've been put in this place, why I have this person I married, and it begins to kind of make sense that this is why I exist, but now I'm going to exist in all of that for the purposes of God. I want you to hear my heart today. Because let me tell you, my heart bleeds for that. That only. My heart bleeds for you more than anything else, that you, you, would look at this stuff that we've talked about and that you might not settle for anything less than the upgrade. That being a rich, personal relationship with God presented to you in the living, dynamic person of Jesus Christ. Because that and that alone is real Christianity. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters with me. Lord, help us to be the church who steps into the saddle of the wild ride of a real relationship with You. And let us enjoy as a congregation in the season of life that we have left. Some of us, it's shorter than others. But for each of us, may around us and in us be this rich experience of you moving in a dynamic way and a relevant way in the world in which we live. Making a difference in people's lives. Bringing people to a knowledge of Christ. 
finding the reason you've called us into the kingdom, experiencing you from the heart. Lord, help us to be a rich, rich people and to never lose the picture window view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.